Welcome once again to the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is January 2024, episode two, and it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And it's hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode of the podcast, we hear from Claire Allen, a remarkable woman who's midway through a walk which will take her around the entirety of Britain's coastline. MP Chris Loder has strong views on the post office horizon scandal which has dominated headlines in recent weeks. And Dorset Island discs from Robert Cowley, a Sturminster Newton lad come Cambridge graduate come local plumber and a leading light behind the creation of the exchange venue. Claire Allen originally hails from Oakford Fitzpaine but now lives in Bristol. In the summer of 2023, she resigned from her job working for a charity and embarked on something of a mission to walk the entire coastline of Britain, starting at John O'Groats and working her way down the east coast. You can see a map of her progress on page 19 of the BV. At the time the magazine went to press, she'd reached Weymouth, but when I spoke to her, she was near Lou in Cornwall, with the halfway point, Land's End, within her sights. Claire, thank you for joining us on the BV podcast. First of all, where are you? Thank you for having me. So right now I am in Cornwall. I've just crossed over the border from Devon into Cornwall today and I am in a little village called Millendreef near Loo in Cornwall on the south coast. And just to reflect, you've been walking the coastline of Britain since the 8th of August. You started in John O'Groats and you've worked your way down the east coast, so you're going clockwise effectively, and you're now all the way down in Cornwall. How many miles is that so far? Well, I have, I've been operating in kilometres until, well, I've been operating in kilometres simply because that's what my map is, is dealing with. That's fine, with. we'll so deal in kilometres, that's fine. We're, we're, we're at probably about the sort of two and a half thousand kilometre mark, probably nearer to three thousand. And I think the whole distance is around, well, it, there's, there's a lot of discussion over how long the, the coastline is. I think it's almost like an infinite number if you were to be really specific about it. But, um, but anything between sort of eight and 12,000 kilometres. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the 8,000. Well, I, I was going to ask you, what about things like, well, locally to here, Portland, for example, do you, did you walk around Portland or did you just <laughs> cut that one out and the Isle of Wight and places like that? What, what happens about no, those? So I didn't do the Isle of Wight, but I did do Portland because you can do Portland in a day. So it felt quite nice and accessible. And I was staying with a friend of a friend who lived on Portland as well. So all of the you know, all of the decisions that you make along the way tend to be kind of influenced by lots of different factors, like, is there somebody you can stay with? You know, does it require you to get a ferry? Can you just walk over to it, which obviously Portland you can. So yes, yeah, so I'm just kind of not quite making up as I go along. Um, there's lots of people who've done this before. And there are lots of people who are doing it at the moment as well. So it's quite helpful to sort of see how they've done it and get some tips and advice and ideas from them but then you, you know it's there aren't any rules you can do whatever you like I'm not trying to break any records or or anything like that so I think it's just kind of seeing how it goes taking each day as it comes and then seeing where you end up let's go back to the beginning here why are you doing it what made you undertake this epic walk of yours I think it's something that's been brewing for a while I've been living in Bristol for not far off 20 years. I've been working in the charity sector. So I'm kind of working communications and marketing. I've been doing that for a while. 
um, I just felt like, uh, you know, I've been doing the same sort of thing in the same sort of place for a long time. And I really fancied a change. You know, there's plenty of adventures out there, there's plenty of big walks or outside outdoor epic trails you can you can follow. And I just thought I'd, I'd seen a, a program actually on, on telly about a guy who's literally just finished this huge walk around the whole of the coastline so he did all the islands in scotland i think he did the channel islands it's a, a man called chris lewis and he met somebody along the way and they had a baby and you know he really did have a sort of life-changing experience but i watched i watched him on tv um and he was talking about it and then i read a book about a woman who'd done something similar as well so they those two sort of people gave me the idea for it and then the reason i i like the sound of the of great britain was because it's not too far from home. You know, if there's ever a sort of emergency or a disaster or something like that, you can always get back. You didn't have to fly anywhere. And it just, and, I, and what also appealed to me was the going around the outside of the of the coastline because you've got a nice sort of neat start and a finish point as well. I don't know, really. I think I just really, you know, like I say, I really wanted to change the scene. And I also knew I wanted to fundraise whilst I did it, but I wasn't really sure when I started out, I wasn't really sure who I wanted to fundraise for. And it was only sort of after a month or so of actually doing the journey that I just, what I realised was that the hardest thing about it was finding somewhere to stay every night. So I had my tent, I had all the kits, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sleeping under bridges or, you know, looking for somewhere kind of on the pavement. But it was just hard. You're moving on every single day. You don't really know what's, what you're going to be met with when you get to your next stopping point. Um, sometimes you've got people that you know or that people have introduced you to that you might be able to stay with, which is brilliant. Occasionally there's a youth hostel. And there's and there's obviously campsites as well, but it was just hard work finding somewhere, and it and it still is quite hard work. But I've kind of got into the swing of things a bit, and I'm sort of a little bit more kind of prepared now, and I understand how it all works. But I think that's what sort of drove me to choose to fundraise for the homelessness charities that I've chosen, because I just thought actually I'm so glad that I don't have to do this for the rest of my life, that I don't have to always be finding somewhere to sleep that night you know I have got a home and I have got a family network that I can call on if I need to so yeah so it's those those two factors really as you say there's no handbook here there's no set of rules so that that, that's great and you can I guess take reasonably as much time as you need to 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 do it but there there must have been a fair amount of planning went into it or or not you know it was it just a case of I'm going to do this let's get on and sort it out as we go Yes, it, there wasn't a lot of planning. It took me a long time to summon up the courage to hand in my notice at work, pack in my job. I'm lucky enough that I do own a house in Bristol, so I rented that out. But really, it all happened quite quickly. And I just thought, actually, I can't spend too long thinking about this because the longer I spend, you know, getting ready, the less likely I am to actually set off. And I thought I just need to give myself a short, sharp window of time where I can buy some kits decide where to start from which way around I'm going to go you know look at the seasons obviously you're going to be doing a winter somewhere so I thought I'd rather be doing my winter in the south of the country hence starting in John O'Groats and going clockwise but really there was a kind of two or three month turnaround between handing in my notice and then starting the walk so it wasn't it, it wasn't over a period of years or anything like that it was quite a sort of quick quick decision and a quick setting off as well I just thought it's one of those things you know there's never a good time to do these things is there there's never a good time to go on holiday have a baby do anything like that and there's certainly never a good time to hand in your notice and set off on a year-long challenge so I just thought I 
I can't give myself too much time to think about it. And then I think in terms of prep, I thought as long as you can walk for a day, it's only going to get easier. So I didn't really do much in the way of training. I thought, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to get fitter as I walk. I can't train for a year long walk. I just might as well just get going and hopefully that will that will make things easier. I did buy some some kit. I bought a decent tent and a proper sleeping bag and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's just been a real, been a lesson. Every day you learn something different. And and I think that's what I looked forward to the most, actually, when I was starting out. I just thought, I really want to get to that stage when I know what I'm doing. Because I felt like such a novice to start with. I just had no idea, you know, I had to practice pitching my tent and what to eat and when to eat it and when to fill up my water bottles and all those kind of things. And like I said, now I know what I'm doing and I'm I'm better equipped to kind of contend with the weather and all that kind of thing. And I've yeah, I feel like I'm in, in the groove of things. Well, I was going to ask you, for those of us that wouldn't contemplate doing anything as bold as this, I, there must be times when you kind of just wish that you weren't there. If it's pouring down with rain and it's uh, zero degrees and blowing a gale, surely there must have been moments when you thought, what am I doing this for? <laughs> I've never got, I haven't got to a stage yet when I thought I really wish I wasn't here. Yeah, every day it's there's such a variety so every day is different and every day you're getting to diff- a new place and seeing new 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 views and new scenery and new villages and m- talking to new people so it's never ever boring yes the weather hasn't been brilliant and I feel a little bit unlucky so we're already on storm Jocelyn or you know the letter J and that's like a record in terms of UK weather to have got this far this early in the year what does matter is knowing that you've got somewhere dry to get into at the end of the day and obviously having sort of dry kits in your bag if you need it but really you can kind of battle through anything as long as you know that you can get dry and warm at the end of the day and I think that's been a really big thing for me and also now because I've raised a sort of decent amount of money so far I feel like actually just need to carry on I can't stop now how much have you raised so it's about uh, not far off six thousand pounds so it's not it's not huge um, but I'm hoping that as I kind of get nearer to the end that will sort of generate some momentum um, you... and people might think oh she might actually really do it have you had much media interest I mean obviously the BV magazine but um, beyond that no the BV magazine has been Excellent. And that has certainly generated donations, which has been brilliant. Had a bit of media um, exposure in Sussex, because another thing, as well as staying with friends and in hostels and campsites, what's been amazing is that I've had real generosity from bed and breakfasts and pubs with rooms and that kind of thing, who've offered me a free room for the night. In in Sussex, in Worthing, it was one of the bed and breakfasts that I stayed with. They got in touch with the local paper and said, oh, we've, you know, we've offered this girl uh, this women a, a room for the night and so the, the local paper kind of covered it from that angle which was a really good little story and then where else oh yeah and then when I went through Newcastle I was at university there and um, the Newcastle Alumni Association wrote an article about it so that was just a nice link as well. Well you're, you're down in Cornwall you're still heading west and you'll you'll mm-hmm. soon reach both the southerly point of the British mainland and the westerly point of it quite close to each other aren't they so you then head north up the Cornish coast and around Wales presumably so how long do you think remains of this walk? I think I'm nearly halfway when I get to Land's End although it's probably not strictly halfway in terms of mileage I think I'll treat it as halfway because I think psychologically I'll be turning the corner like you say and going back up the the other side in terms of time again I think it's we're nearing halfway so it will be six months at the beginning of February and really 
like I say, because there aren't any rules, if I have to cut off a few corners when I get to the west coast of Scotland, I'm, I, I might do that simply because I can't really afford to take um, too much longer than a year over this. So, yeah, so Land's End, I think, will be psychologically a brilliant um, milestone. And hopefully that will also be a really good milestone to talk about on, you know, maybe in in the media or on social me- social media or things like that. I'm looking forward to that. That should be at the beginning of February. Final question then. Highlights and lowlights, what's been the the real moments for you at both ends of that scale? So lowlights, do you know what? I've been quite lucky. So nothing terrible has happened. The only real drama I've had was, was when uh, I went off to brush my teeth one evening when I was at camping, came back and a fox had managed to make its way into my tent and sort of ripped a great big hole in it and there was food all over the campsite and it just wasn't a good night at all and it was then and that that's just when it was starting to get cold and the clocks had changed so I thought maybe the universe is telling me that it's time to stop, to stop camping for the winter so that was a bit of a pain but then actually in response to that everyone was so kind on social media and somebody said oh this is who you need to speak to and gave me a good contact at the tent company so I got it all sorted quite quickly highlights have been I suppose just seeing this just extraordinary places around the coastline and the views and now that I'm on the southwest coast path every day is just magnificent you know the hills are huge but the views are worth it people have been so kind you know and they're so everyone's so interested and generous and have made donations even though I've only spoken to them for a few minutes at a time on just past them on the path that's been a real highlight and then like I say just the diversity and the variety of every day is is just it's just enough to keep you going it really is it kind of is exciting to get going every morning and the best way to track your progress I'm guessing is on your Instagram page is it yes that's right so Instagram and then there's a map that I update every night which can people can see where I've got to so yes I'm not writing a blog or anything but yeah Yeah. just photos and And if if people would like to support you what's the easiest way for them to do that oh so on the Instagram page there's also a link to the just giving page and on the just giving page there's a opportunity to donate to either of the two different charities so it's shelter and only a pavement away that I'm fundraising for Claire, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Slightly crazy, if I may say. (laughs) Wonderful thing you're doing. And we wish you every luck with the rest of your epic journey around Britain. Thank you so much, Terry. It's really nice to talk to you. And from West Dorset MP Chris Loder comes his monthly contribution to the BV. I'm always delighted to spend time in our post offices in West Dorset and with their staff and sub-postmasters, especially the ones I see most in Sherborne, Bemminster and Dorchester. Their work is incredible. These people have for a long time been community-driven and I'd like to place on record how grateful I am for everything they do. But my respect for the senior management of the post office? Quite a different thing. I find them disingenuous, greedy and predatory – So much so that I called out their lies in the House of Commons last year, not just about the horizon system itself, but their own behaviour. The Post Office Board attempted to award itself enormous executive bonuses, which, after parliamentary intervention, were halted. This, when many people deserving damages from the horizon nightmare had not, and still have not, been paid, and when they've screwed down the transaction fees for our post offices, to such a minimal amount that some postmasters can barely get by. Their arrogance is unbelievable. The post office horizon outrage is something that has sickened me since being in Parliament. Here in West Dorset, thankfully only one sub-postmaster was a victim of this scandal. 
but that was one too many. Across the country, many were falsely accused, and some have died since, without getting their names cleared. It's one of the worst institutional scandals in living memory. I've spoken in the House of Commons on numerous occasions about this, and while progress has been made, it needs to be quicker. The Metropolitan Police has this week announced it's investigating criminal proceedings. The Mr Bates versus the Post Office drama on ITV was shocking to watch. So much is clearly laid out and brought into sharp focus. We, the public, have frequently looked on at this issue without properly understanding what actually happened. But I want to let you know that I will stop at nothing until we get Paula Vennell stripped of her CBE, remove the appeals and recompense process from the post office itself, get real and proper justice for every person who has been affected by this, get an answer out of the leader of the Liberal Democrats as to why he took £275,000 from the post office's legal firm who were fighting the sub-postmasters. Ed Davey, the current leader of the Liberal Democrats, was post office minister in the coalition government during this time. He should answer to Parliament why it is that, when he was the minister, he ignored the calls for help. Maybe the Lib Dems will be able to shed some light on that in next month's edition. Ed Davey worked as a consultant on political issues and policy analysis for Herbert Smith Freehills from 2015 until November 2021. HSF is the firm engaged by the post office during the Horizon period. During this time, and continuing, many sub-postmasters were and are fighting to clear their names. As always, if I can help, you can contact me by email, hello at chrisloader.co.uk, or write to me at the House of Commons, London, SW1A, OAA. And just a note to say, as you probably know, Paula Vennels has since handed back her CBE. Laura Hitchcock speaks to Robert Cowley, MBE, magistrate, volunteer and plumber, and he selects his Dorset Island discs. He graduated from Cambridge and, to his father's consternation, went straight back into the family plumbing business, and he's never looked back. Robert Cowley from Sturminster Newton received an MBE for his services to the community in 2010. He spent more than 30 years as a local magistrate. It's a big responsibility. I started in the days when there were courtrooms all around Dorset. Now there's just Weymouth and Poole, but I've sat in Blandford, Sherburne, Bridport, Dorchester, Wareham, Wimborne. Local justice really was local. But it's a quick way of learning about life and quite a life changer as well, if you're prepared to learn from it. But the Cambridge graduate is probably just as well known as a leading light in SNADS the Sturminster Newton Amateur Dramatic Society, and as a passionate and tireless driving force behind the development of the exchange, and also as the latest generation in the family's 125-year-old plumbing business. I'm not only Dorset born and bred, I was born just three houses down the road. My mum came from London looking for a rest after the war. She'd married very young and was widowed shortly afterwards and moved to Dorset for a new beginning. Father was a self-employed plumber, working very, very hard. Life was typical for an agricultural town in the 50s. Quite quiet, a lot of hard work, and not a huge amount of money around. Mother soon got involved with SNADS, the local amateur dramatic society. From really very small, I remember the annual pantomime. It was magical. But because my parents were involved with setting it up, for me it wasn't just going and seeing a show. 
In those days, we didn't have a hall, just the British Legion hut, and the stage was in pieces, stored above the coffin shop and the builder's yard opposite. We would literally all head to Bath Road, and the stage would be carried across the road and assembled. It was always second nature to know that there were the two sides of a play, backstage and on stage. Everything changed when I was 11. My dad went to Blandford Grammar School and hated it so much that he swore no child of his was ever going there. And we didn't. I don't know how he managed it, but we all went to Hardy's in Dorchester. All three of us, my two brothers too, boarded in Dorchester during term time. I went from there to the University of Cambridge, and I suddenly jumped into a completely different world. And I loved it. It was an amazing place to be. It was intellectually very stimulating and demanding, obviously. But I was equally fascinated, really, by all the extras, particularly because I was basically just a plumber's son. I still used to come home and lend a hand in the business during holidays. Theatre was still something that interested me, and it's what I spent my spare time on, but it had suddenly moved into a different dimension. I did a three-week season at the Edinburgh Fringe, sleeping on a floor, doing three different plays and marching the streets in costume, handing out flyers. We did a Greek tragedy in the open air in Cornwall, it was an amazing three years, which I then wrapped up by coming home and joining the family firm, not actually my plan at all. I didn't have a very strong drive to do anything in particular. I was studying English, which is a pretty open-ended sort of subject. My dad had always insisted that none of us would be going into the family business. In later years, we discovered that he hadn't been given the choice himself. He finished his school certificate, signed off school in the morning, and started work for his father that afternoon, no choice at all. So he said he wasn't going to let that happen to his children, and he set himself to educate all of us as far through the education system as we could go. It just happened that as I was finishing my final exams, he came to Cambridge to visit me and was taken very ill. He was told he wasn't going to recover and certainly couldn't carry on working. He didn't want to let his customers down and wanted to shut his business down in an orderly manner. At the time, I was effectively spare. I was planning to go and do a certificate of education, but came back first to help close the business. And within six months, I thought, I can see a lot of pluses here. It was all to do with the community. We were a well-known, well-established business. It was a lovely place to live, and the attractions of being self-employed were quite substantial. So that's what I did. Three or four years later, my next brother effectively did the same thing, finished his degree, went to New Zealand for six months farming, and then came back and joined the business too. With the two of us working, father actually recovered quite a lot. We had a few years of the three of us working together, which was great. Father was a master plumber, a high level of achievement, and it's a very old business. I'm largely retired now, and my brother's still working at the moment, with his son giving him a hand. The business started in 1896, by the time I retired, it had been going 125 years and three generations. We're now on to the fourth, but that's not long term. He's just helping out for a while. When I returned to Sturminster, I got heavily involved with Snads again. I was married, had two daughters, and was working exceptionally hard, and Snads was my relaxation. But my marriage went to pieces, and I was working even harder trying to cope with two children on my own. And then I met Linda. Strangely echoing my mother, she had arrived in Sturminster from London. She's a better actor than me, and also a good director. We met in a rehearsal room in 1983, fell in love on stage, and we've been together ever since. Because of my association with the Dramatic Society, I got involved with the Sturminster Hall Committee. By then, we had a hall. It was opposite the police station, and ended up chairing the new hall subcommittee around the time the cattle market closed.
And then there was this huge site left empty in the middle of town, and locals will remember it was a complicated story. I ended up moving from the hall committee to the new hall subcommittee and then to the project group for the entire market site, which included what became the exchange. From that point on, I was involved in the whole redevelopment concept, but it was a very, very big thing. The way the whole site was developed was a community-led project. By the time we'd consulted, planned and seen off some unwanted developers, we had the exchange drawn into the whole concept. People thought it was completely mad. We were effectively replacing a one-room hall with a big entertainment complex. We then had to work through all sorts of dramatics, getting the actual planning permission that was necessary in order to unlock the money that was necessary to secure the site, but eventually we did it. Half the site's depth was sold off for housing, but housing to the design that the community produced. And that left the near side of the site for the medical centre, the supermarket, offices and the exchange, which sits on land given by the developer. But beyond that, the building was built not by the developer, not by the council, it was built by the community. Ultimately, we raised £2.6 million. There were contributions from the councils. We got some huge grants. We were very, very lucky. We were told at the time, this is the last gasp. There's going to be no more money. We just hit the right spot. If we'd been a year later, I doubt we'd have done it. So it was built and paid for, no debts. The bills were all paid. But that also meant that there wasn't any money left. We had rather naively thought that we would be able to run it as the Sturminster Hall functioned, with a committee and just a caretaker. If you hired it, you got the key, and if people wanted to have a bar, they'd get a one-off licence and then run a bar on a table with an ice cream tub for the money. Strangely, the exchange didn't really work like that. We'd been so obsessed with getting there that we hadn't really given that much thought to what happened next. We tried to run it with volunteers. We couldn't do it. We took on someone part-time, but that didn't work either. We needed a manager and eventually had to take on somebody without really having the money to do it, trusting they would generate the income. It took us ten years to stabilise financially, and then we really started to build some reserves, getting the whole thing really solid and secure. And then came the pandemic. We had the reserves, and we got a cultural recovery grant, which saw us through the initial lockdown. But then things started to go pear-shaped, because of course it wasn't just the one lockdown and we created eight jobs, eight people we're responsible for. As we came out of the lockdown, this confidence in the community was at rock bottom, and people just didn't want to be inside, sitting with other people. The income dropped to almost nothing. Gradually, over a couple of years, that's picked up. But now, as confidence has increased, so the cost of living problems have cut in. And finally, we've been hit by fuel prices. That's created, for the first time in 16 years, a potential crisis. In the last few months, we've had some sellout shows, so that's generating income, but most of our reserves have been used up just surviving since 2020. With limited reserves and depressed income, we now need to find £20,000 a year extra for electricity. Somehow, we have to magic it up, so that's where we are. Our priority over the next six months is finding money. We need to bring in money. We need our village. We need people's goodwill. Because we have to fund this immediate crisis, we know we've got something that works, and we know given time we can adjust and adapt. But we need the funds now to allow that to happen. And so to Robert's eight music choices, in no particular order, along with how and why they've stuck in his life. Over to Laura. Okay, record number one. I'm going to call them records, although presumably yeah, don't have fine. records anymore. So the first one is Akabilk, Stranger on the Shore. Yeah. So tell me why that's your choice. 
that's that is my choice going right back actually to primary school days at William Barnes, which may sound a little strange. That's an odd choice for a primary school pupil. Yeah, it's it's one of the most vivid memories I have of primary school, top class of primary school. Um, two things stick in my mind: an open coal fire in the corner. In the classroom. In the classroom. Um, and this music, the melody, coming through from the staff room next door, because our headmaster, Fred Grinnell, played the clarinet. And Stranger on the Shore was the thing. We're talking now the um, very end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. Yeah. Um, and it was just a, a, a melody that stuck in my head. And it, with being in that classroom. Subsequently I learned what it was and then, I don't know, 25 years later maybe, um, I actually saw Michael Bilk and the Paramount Jazz Band playing at Bryanston, in fact, and actually saw him playing that, that song and it was quite extraordinary how, what effect it had on me. I mean, it, uh, that, it, I, it never occurred to me it could, it could do that, but I was, it was, took me straight back to that primary school classroom. Wow. With the sort of magic in live performance. That's fantastic. So, yeah, primary school. <laughs> and we've got Elkie Brooks, we've got tonight. We are, we've got an eclectic mix in your list. You certainly It's have. fantastic. So Elkie Brooks. Well, that's something very much to do with Linda and me. When we were first together, as is often the case, you know, there's some sort of music, a piece of music or an artist. It's your there, song. Your yep. song sort of thing. It wasn't particularly that song, actually. It was more Elkie Brooks at the time. So it could have been one of two or three songs, maybe. Um, so that's why it's there. But there's a, 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 an add-on reason. When the exchange first opened, Linda, in the absence of staff, Linda, because she got quite a, a substantial arts sort of background, um, was the one of the people who was trying to source performers to come to the exchange. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that she discovered might be an option was Elkie Brooks. So she had a particular impetus to try and get hold of her. Um, she did come and uh, we uh, let it be known to her manager um, Part of the reason that we've been so keen to get us to the exchange was a personal reason. Um, and as a result, we have a programme from that performance at the exchange, which says, signed, thank you so much for inviting us to play for you. Oh, which we thought was rather nice. That's lovely. So that's a little bit more special, that one. Extra special. Hmm. And then track number three is Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat but specifically the National Theatre cast? Well, yes, specifically the National Theatre, actually. It's, um, that's because, I mean, we've gone to the theatre all, all our lives together, all over the place, love theatre, all sorts of theatre, you know, um, from King Lear all the way down to tiny productions and musicals. I mean, musical theatre done well is brilliant. Um, there have been a couple of particular ones that have caught our 
imagination. Showboat was probably the first one. Um, brilliant production of that by the RSC and Opera North. But then we saw Guys and Dolls at the National Theatre and went back to see it when they brought it back. Um, and that's kind of why the choice is there. I mean, in a way, it could be any one of a, a zillion things because we've seen so many things. Mm -hmm. But because it's theatre, something that if you go and see it, it's constantly renewing. It just happens. Guys and Dolls is the last show that we've seen at the Bridge Theatre. So it was a wonderful new theatre in London. Okay. Innovative production, promenade productions, just amazing. The whole, whole show done on a huge floor in and among the audience. Oh. Um, and actually, the, the soundtrack for that has just been released, but it, that's literally since I gave the list to you. <laughs> so I'm happy to go for the National Theatre. <laughs> so, but that's why it's there. It's, it's, it's our theatre going together and the most recent. Which is your. It was literally how you met, as much as anything. That as well, yeah. And stayed with it. Um, hot chocolate, it started with a kiss. Well, the, the, I guess there may, be, there may be a story in there as well. But, but uh, again, it's, it's theatre-based, actually. It's because we acted together a lot. We played lead parts opposite each other for years. Um, Linda, I mean, I wrote and directed pantomimes many pantomimes over the years in Sturminster, but Linda's directed plays. Um, and in, there was a period when I was so, so busy with the preliminary work for the exchange and so on, that I couldn't do very much. I was sort of off the stage quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Linda directed a production of Lucky Salts by John Godber. And I ended up with a small part in it, but she asked me to effectively produce it to sort of help get it on the stage. Mm -hmm. We um, did something a bit different in terms of staging from something we'd seen elsewhere. We just thought, well, okay, we'll introduce this to Sturminster, even if it takes them a bit by surprise. Mm -hmm. The music we used during scene changes and so on was hot chocolate. Okay. And so that particular track just, again, just lights up that production for me. It just reminds me of, of working together with Linda to put something on the stage that wasn't quite what Sturmster was expecting. Being a bit experimental theatre in Stir. Yeah, we've done, we've done various And did Stir like it? Yeah, yes, it went round very well. <laughs> yes. It's important to add that in. Yes. <laughs> okay, track number five, Ladysmith Black Mambardo with yep. Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Ladysmith Black Mambardo because of Africa. We've been fortunate to have come to Africa several times. Um, I've got one particular moment I'd like to tell you about as well, coming from that, but not specifically related to this. So that's Africa, it's the Africa connection. Mm -hmm. And that is maybe slightly easy African music, but nonetheless, it's very reminiscent of Africa. But that particular track has, if you like, a, there's, a, there's two lots of music going on at the same time. The backing side of it is a crowd singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Yeah. Which features me, both my brothers, and a group of friends, and the other 75,000 people who were at Twickenham. <laughs> <laughs> because we just happened, we, we spent, that group of brothers and friends, we spent 30 years going to Twickenham, to nearly every international. And that particular day, 
before the game, there was an announcement that for, this, for that particular recording, they wanted to take a recording of the crowd singing, so would everyone get stuck in and sing? So that one manages to do two things at the same time, does Africa and 30 years of visiting Twickenham with a very, very tight band of friends and, and my brothers. And sharing the rugby together. Mm. And you're starring on a track, you and 75,000 other people. Mm. <laughs> so what's the Africa story? Oh, the Africa story. Well, um, we've been to Ghana twice, visiting friends. So not a tourist trip to Ghana, visiting in Ghana. The second time we went, completely unexpected, um, we went to Elmina Castle, which is one of the two slave forts in Ghana. Mm -hmm. It was the year of Ghana's 50th year of independence. Mm -hmm. uh, but just after those celebrations, the event we went to was to celebrate 200 years since the abolition of slavery in Britain. It was held in Elmina Castle. It was a very grand event. President Garland was there, the Paramount Chiefs were there. Um, Tony Blair, who was Prime Minister at the time, was doing a, a, a speech um, beamed in. Um, Baroness Amos was there representing the government. Blah, blah, blah. We, white people, were sitting in the front row and there was a tremendous um, mix of things going on. There was, there was music, there was drama, there was all sorts of stuff. But the most striking bit was a depiction, dramatic depiction of the arrival of the white man in Ghana. So we got black Ghanaians wearing white masks, which was a pretty freaky thing to see, capturing, subjugating the Ghanaians. And that was followed by, and again, we're talking actors, we're talking performers, I don't think they're even actors, um, a, a long, long, long line of Ghanaians in chains being led in, led into the, to the courtyard where we were sitting. And as, uh, because we were in the front row, they came literally just around the corner and right across in front of our toes. And there was a, a Ghanaian girl in chains in the middle of this line who just momentarily stopped right in front of us and looked at us in a understandably a, a very challenging way I mean I don't mean aggressive way she just looked at us and it was absolutely electrifying it was difficult to describe how how um, how much impact there was to that it was certainly enough to, to induce tears. Um, never forgot it. And that moment uh, is, I, I guess, if only everyone else could go through that, all this questioning of things like human rights and doubts about the effect that colonialism had. And to be honest, understanding of the situations of refugees and so on would be far less of a contentious point than it is. Yeah. It was an absolutely extraordinary moment. It was a complete chance, a lot of things coming together. And in the end, it came down to a moment of performance, really, which interestingly ties back to the whole theatre thing. It does. It must be incredibly uncomfortable watching. Very. 
Okay. For something that obviously you personally bear no responsibility for, and yet there's a collective responsibility that you must have been feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, all these rather abstruse debates about you know, apologies and whatever, it suddenly looks very, very different if you just take it back down to the human level. Yeah. And actually, I mean, a castle itself is scary. I mean, the, um, if you go, go on and take them around the castle, one of the things that you do is you go into the punishment cell. It's a room. It has no windows, it has no light. It has two doors, and the effectively people who are captured, who are going to be shipped off as slaves, if they offended, that's where they went. And they didn't come out. Well, um, they got no food, they got no water. That's just where, where they were put. The room's still there, and if you're visiting the castle, you're taken in. And they give you the option of turn the lights out and shut the doors. And it lasted, a group of a group of us did it, and it, it lasted seconds. I think it's exactly the same thing. <coughs> you find yourself realizing what people did to other people. Yeah, and it's a it's an extraordinary experience. So it's just an awful shame that not more people get to do it because mm. there'd be a bit more understanding of uh, other people yes. in the world. So, sorry, diversion. You have to change the mood a little now. Um, uh, track number, what are we on? Six, aren't we? Paolo Conte with the concerti of <sighs> Sotola Stella Dal Jazz. It could have been a, any one of a number of tracks. It's Paolo Conte is the... Uh, the key to that and that's just a we built pretty good um representative song i say we because it was a joint experience we were in venice we went to venice um again a little bit like going to Ghana. we went two weeks in a flat rather than going to see the sites we just mm -hmm. went to live in venice for a couple of weeks one night went out for a meal went into a um interesting looking place we spoke no Italian. The proprietor spoke no English, <laughs> uh, which is fine. It's amazing what you can do. Yep. Um, we were the only people there. Uh, in the end, by the time we, we finished the evening and the very interesting meal, there had been four other customers. Um, I think we've, we've talked about this a lot since. since. Um, one of the best evenings we've ever had. We got full-on, full Basil Fawlty treatment, full-on The Godfather, and... <laughs> You're really selling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the other thing was, all the time, all these bizarre things were going on, there was equally bizarre music just filtering through the wall from the kitchen. Um, and we were really quite chatty with the proprietor by the time we left, in the absence of any language. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did manage to communicate with him. We really wanted to know what this music was. So he wrote it down for us. And one of our projects the next day was to find a CD shop, which is not that easy in the middle of Venice, no. uh, where we we did. And um, we bought Best Of, which had just been released, which was what, what was being played. 
since when we have bought more and more and more Paolo Conti and even managed to see him perform actually in London. He's, a, he's very unusual. He's actually he's not totally unfamiliar. His, um, one of his um, pieces was used for advertisements. It actually became quite well known in Britain for a while. But it's very distinctive. It's very distinctive and to us it's Venice. Fabulous. Uh, track seven, Shaky Ground by the Barrel House Blues Orchestra. The exchange, absolutely the exchange. Um, Paul Hart, who was a contemporary of mine, lived a couple of houses up the road there, now sadly deceased, um, was a, an athlete and a musician and an artist. Um, he painted the mural in the co-op. The co-op, yeah. Um, he ran the Barrel House Blues Club as a sort of rotating club. I mean, it, it had different bases. It had operated all over the place. Um, Banford, Sterminster, mostly in Sterminster. Um, he had a huge number of musical contacts, so he could get some quite big names to come and sort of do a, a guest performance for him. Um, and when the exchange opened, he thought it was absolutely it was absolutely what he'd been waiting for for all these years. So he was the other person who was really responsible for getting some of the, the bigger live acts in early on. Mm -hmm. He brought Andy Fairweather alone in very early on. Um, but the alongside all this, the Battle House Blues Orchestra was an orchestra with 25-odd players, uh, all local musicians, um, Paul leading it and Johnny Mars was his sort of partner in crime. Um, that number of people, it was quite difficult for them all to play together. I mean, you need a big stage to yeah. So again, the exchange was perfect. And they played at the exchange. Um, they they record the CD I've got there's um, most of the tracks on it were recorded for Radio 2 because they, they had quite a bit of stuff played on Radio 2 mm -hmm. because they were quite an unusual outfit. Um, this particular track isn't, it's a live performance actually from Bryanston from the Code Hall, but they performed at the exchange and Paul died not so long after the exchange opened, sadly. Mm. But uh, the Bauhaus Blues Orchestra came back several times after that to perform there. Um, so it's just a wonderful example of, of local talent, local enthusiasm, um, and good music. <laughs> and your final choice is, I'm not even going to try and say it, Stavros Zarchakos? Yeah, Zarchakos. That wasn't a bad guess, was it? No, no, pretty good, I reckon. <laughs> and the Boys of the National Defence. Yeah, it sound, that sounds like a very carefully selected track. Uh, it, but it's it not does. quite as... I'm going to say it's not track. selling it to me either as a fun listen. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's, it is fun listen. It's Greece. It's Greece. Um, we travelled a lot. We had not only a few years after we got married, we had an accident, a road accident. I was very nearly killed. It was a long recovery time. And we decided after that that um, life was for living. And although we were busy, we had family, we had five children between us, we'd always said we needed a bit of time for ourselves to stay sane. And after that accident, we decided that actually if we could do things, we would. Mm -hmm. So although you know, we didn't have that much time, 
we set about traveling where we could and to Africa and to Venice. Mm -hmm. um, but the first holiday we had abroad, we went to Greece, nothing about Greece. Um, and the village that we went to, we absolutely fell in love with and we carried on going back to that village. The last time we went was now five, six years ago. It's on Lesbos, which had huge refugee problems, mm -hmm. the forefront yeah. of the refugee problems which was just starting when we were last there. And it's been pretty horrible, really, to see places that we know overrun by that problem and know that the local people are the cope with it. Mm. But we've had many, many years of magic there. And part of that has been, um, although the big, the village was at the other end of the island. Mussolini is the main town, and so we'd always arrive in Mussolini, end up in Mussolini, and it's that's just absolute wraparound memory of eating the fish taverns at Mussolini, Greek music as it should be. Fantastic. Okay, now you've got to. There's a big wave coming in. You can only save one of them. Which one are you going to take with you? I think the Paolo Conte one. I think. Is that Venetian magic? Yeah. All the, uh, uh, just all those songs you will have gathered, they're all there for the memories. Mm -hmm. they, go, they go with them. I, yeah. I like music, but I like it live, really, rather than sitting in a room listening to it. So there's probably other pieces of music that I might enjoy more for themselves, but everything on this list is just is there for the memories. And yeah. That, that's a pretty good central memory. That's great. And book. Have you got a book you want to take with you? Very difficult. It's always the worst question, I, I think. Read, I read all the time. So I will go for Nicholas Nickleby. Um. And the reason is that although like, there are other writers I maybe, you know, I mean, Dickens wouldn't be my top, top writer, though I love Dickens. But again, it's, it's an attached memory. I was lucky enough back in the early 80s to see the RSC production of Nicholas Nickleby. Trevor Nunn set out to dramatise the whole book, not, not to do an extract from Nicholas mm -hmm. Nickleby, a play length. What they eventually came up with was something that ran for about nine hours. If you wanted to see wow. the whole thing in one day, you could, but you literally had to go for the day, yeah. break for meals. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on the stage. And so I actually, I actually have a copy of Nicholas Nickleby with, as it were, illustrations from that show. And so that unlocks oh, an absolute mountain of extraordinary theatrical memories. So it's, it, again, it scores on two, two different levels. Two levels. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Robert Cowley there speaking to our editor, Laura Hitchcock. Well, that's about it for the January edition of the BV Magazine podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it and will join us again for February's coming to a podcast provider near you very soon. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next month, goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.